You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in and looked at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many who are called, but few are chosen. This is God's word. Amen. Well, thank you, Kim. Um, Before we dive into our text, I want to draw your attention to this brochure Everybody should have one near where they're seated. And you can take that right now and open this up. We are an Acts 29 church. It's not a denomination, but it's a church planting network. If you're coming to the membership class today at 3 o'clock, you'll hear more about this. But we are all about planting churches, okay. And Acts 29, we've been an Acts 29 church for 11 years now, since day one. We're all about planting churches among neighbors and nations. And so we see that on the walls with Ecuador and North Africa and Madison. Um, We see it gospel community mission. We see it in our statement of vision for our church that we are a spirit-filled family that seeks to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. That's who we are. And Acts 29 does an amazing job helping us do this. Um, I'm really excited about Acts 29. Um, there have been a, a recent podcast with our director, Steve Treichler. In a few weeks, I'm going to be uh, having on the podcast Brian Howard, who is the director of the whole thing of uh, these almost 800 churches. And we'll have him on our podcast just to have a great uh, conversation about church planting. But we just want to draw your attention to Acts 29, and this is who we are. We're calling this Church Planting Sunday all throughout Acts 29. So we just want to draw attention to it. We want to be thankful for it, and right now we're going to turn our attention to the screen, and we're just going to watch a short video about what Acts 29 is and um, just hear some testimonies and a snapshot of it. So let's take a look right now. 
29 is a global network of over 700 churches worshiping in 50 countries with nearly 30 languages. And we are committed to planting healthy, multiplying churches in every corner of the world. God is a global God and that he works through different ethnicities and cultures and languages around the world. Being faithful to God's great commission is to make disciples and to plant churches. Churches characterized by theological clarity, cultural engagement, and missional innovation. We believe that uh, the church is God's primary mission strategy for establishing his kingdom and his presence on earth. We want to reach people with the gospel, and our reach is amplified through Acts 29 as a network, so more people will know and worship him. Each one of our members has been blessed by all the training that we have received as planters. We want our church to be a praying church and also a church that disciples others. This is what we do and this is who we are. We are people who plant churches. So Acts 29 accomplishes its mission uh, primarily through three things. By assessing potential church planters. We provide continued assistance for churches and leaders through coaching, trainings, and also relational connection. We get to collaborate with the whole bride of Christ to plant churches, not only just in our areas, but we partner globally to plant churches. And as we partner together with Acts 29, with churches around the world, our efforts are multiplied and the God is glorified when we work together as a church. This is Acts 29. 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 Um, explanation the, the, there aren't 29 chapters in the book of Acts there's only 28 and that's the point like it's the continuation of the book of Acts through the word and the spirit of God to see the gospel radiate out and we're going to talk about that this morning actually in our text. And so let's look at Matthew 22 starting in verse 1. So what does it say? And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. So let's stop right there. I love this quote. I, I drew on uh, one of, a pastor named Dan Doriani, who's one of my seminary professors. I drew on his work on this passage a lot this week. So He's going to have some quotes. But here's the first quote. Like all parables, this one is a comparison, an analogy meant to make a point. Not to offer a precise definition of the kingdom. Strange things happen in parables, so they arrest our attention and make us think. Okay? So just think of that, receive that as a framework for what we're going to think about this morning. Okay? It's not a precise definition of the kingdom, but it's a, there's a point here to have a stop and think and reflect. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. All right, so verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Okay, so remember, this is a metaphor. This is a story to compare what God is like in his kingdom. Okay. How the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, how does that work? 
okay? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. All right, so we've got a king. We've got a feast for his son, a wedding feast, big party, big celebration, okay? If you're the king, you can have the authority to throw a huge party, okay? So a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But here's where it gets strange. What does it say? But they would not come. Well, that's odd, right? Like this is the king. And this is a feast. And it's free of charge. And he's saying, come, partake. One of my good friends, Tony, he has a annual party at his house. And it is a party of all parties. It is like, you know, 100, 200 people, full catered barbecue, like smoked brisket and all that, a DJ. They live next to this big park behind their house, and so it just spills over into the park. You know, it's just kids running everywhere, good food, good drink. And, like, I mean, the cars are lined up down the block. I mean, it's like a, it's like a can't-miss thing. Like, if we're going to be on vacation during their party, my kids are super bummed. Like, this is a big deal. And Tony throws his party. And we're good friends. And imagine if I didn't have anything going on, if we didn't have anything going on. But we just decided to stay home. We live two blocks away, and we're good friends. And we just, we're, we're going to sit this one out. And eh, we're good. Like, that would be weird. And it would probably prompt my friend Tony to pull me aside and say, dude, what, what's going on, man? Like, what, what's the deal here? It's just bizarre that you didn't show up and you didn't have anything going on. You just stayed at home, and we're all down here having a great time, and we're really good friends, and what, what's going on? It just kind of feels rude. It just feels odd. And that's kind of the picture that Jesus is painting here. You see that? Big feast, big party. Everyone's invited. Nah, we're good. We're going to stay home. But more than that rude response, I want you to really pay attention to the king. So how does he respond? What you're going to see is the king's grace, the the king's generosity, it's very persistent. He doesn't give up so easy. His generosity won't just stand down on the first try. Look at verse 4. Again, so repetition here. He's not giving up. He sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So now what's the king doing? Man, he's ramping up the persuasion tactics, right? What does he say? He says, the animals have been slaughtered. Like when you, he says an ox here. Like you ever seen an ox? That's a huge animal, right? And so what does that mean? That means there's going to be a lot of food, a lot of meat to go around. Like that's no small undertaking to slaughter an ox, right? Expensive animal, huge animal. 
What does it mean? It means the king is not sparing any expense. He's generous. He's come partake in my generosity. Look at these, this good food we're going to have. It's going to be a feast, a gracious feast. Come to the party. Come and be satisfied. So what do we learn about the king? We learn that he's persistent. And he's persistent in his desire to be gracious. Right? He doesn't give up. His grace does not give up so easy. But sadly, they're not persuaded. Look at verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. So what's the first thing we see here? It's just indifference and apathy, right? Like my farm, I got some chores to do. I'd rather do that. I'd rather do chores than go to this party. Or I've got business. My time is time is money. I got this business. We're burning daylight. Verse 5, paid no attention, went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Verse 6, it gets worse. So now it's not just indifference or apathy, it's active hostility. See that? While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So instead of receiving the the offer with thankfulness, what happens? Murder happens. Like Jesus is, is trying to really like gain our attention. The original audience hearing this for the first time and us. Like you receive this offer of generosity with violence, murder. Like this is pure wickedness, right? Like can you imagine the, the governor of Wisconsin inviting you to sit with him in his box seats at Camp Randall for the biggest game of the Big Ten season. And it's, it's sold out. And he sends his assistants to your house, knock, knock, knock on the door. Hey, the governor wants you to join him in his box seats, luxury box, great food, great drink, great seats. Join him for the game in the box seats. And instead of receiving that with joy and thankfulness, you murder the assistant. Like what, what kind of senselessness is that? What kind of absurdity is that? Like slamming the door in, in the face of the assistant would be rude enough, right? But you murder? Like it's just, it sounds silly coming out of my mouth. And that's Jesus' point. It's incomprehensible. It's absurd. So why is Jesus telling this story in a way that's so jarring? Well, I think it helps us to remember what have we seen in the book of Matthew up to this point. And you don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to read off what Jesus has experienced up to this point. Not all of it, but just some selections, okay? We, we could go back to chapter 12. And it says this, Jesus went on from there and entered the synagogue And a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Jewish leaders, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Verse 12 
24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this ca- that man casts out demons. So he's accused of being demon-possessed or in league with the devil. Chapter 13, 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom that... And these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. They just want to test him. They don't want to receive him. They want to test him. Verse 21, 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Verse, 20, uh, verse 23 of 21, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the, the, uh, chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? So, so what do we see? And that's not all of them. That's just a snapshot of what do we see of Jesus relating to his own people, the people that were the Bible people, the people that should have known about the Messiah. Just straight resistance, right? Straight antagonism. You can see as you think about the book of Matthew more globally why Jesus would be so exasperated at this point. Telling a story that's jarring to get attention. I mean, we've had these three stories last three weeks in a row. Jesus is building up to this. And it's going to get even worse as we get to chapter 23. Where you're going to see the wrath of God verbally poured out on these people. From his own people. The leaders of his own people, it's been mainly nothing but resistance and opposition. And Jesus comes offering a feast. Come to me and drink. Come to me and eat. Come to me, life in my name. Come and be satisfied. But all he experiences for the most part is rejection and antagonism. So the parable continues. Verse 7. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So at a certain point, the patience of the king runs out. At a certain point, justice will be done. But look, where do we start? We started with asking you to consider the graciousness of the king. And that's what we return to. Right? A third time we're going to see that his grace cannot be squashed. His offer of life and satisfaction cannot be squashed. This invitation will continue to radiate out. 
inviting people to experience joy in his generosity. Look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the king's son will be honored, right? The king's son will be honored. But now what is it? Anybody can come. It doesn't matter what you've done. See how it says there? Good or bad? It's the invitation that goes out to the main roads. See that? What does that mean? Where all the people are. Where all the people are. Go out where everybody is. Right? It's kind of like the DMV or the library. You got every social class. Everybody goes. Right? You go where the traffic is. You go where the people are. But see, the, the symbolism here is not hard to follow, right? Jesus is first rejected by his own people. And they kill his messengers, the prophets, or capital M messenger, Jesus. But the free gift of God's grace will not be squashed, will not be forgotten. Like it has to radiate out. The invitation has to continue, right? The invitation is not squashed by resistance of those who should have known better. Think about what was prophesied about Jesus at his birth by Simon. It says, this baby will be a light to the Gentiles, is what was prophesied about Jesus. And Jesus is just saying, yeah. In this story, you're going to see that that's, that's true. Like, the, the light will go out, not just to the Jewish people, but to all people. Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Jesus, the message of the gospel, is a light to the whole world. That's what that means. And that's what Jesus is illustrating here. Right? It's going to go beyond just his own people. And think about it like this. Jesus' parable has come true where you sit right now, right? We sit thousands of miles from where this parable was originally told. And we are the reenactment of it, right? The radiating out of the gospel. It started in Jerusalem and goes to Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth. Here we sit. We are the ends of the earth, right? We are a reenactment of this parable. Isn't that beautiful? We're the ones sitting by the, on the main roads and hearing that call. We're acting it out right now. This message has to radiate out. You can't squash it. That's why we celebrate Church Planting Sunday. It's the point of discipleship is not just keep it all in. No, it has to be pushed out. And that's why we want to see more churches planted. More disciples made, more communities of light spread all over Madison. That's why we have Houston as a church planting resident. That's why we pray that God would bring more residents, more elders, more leaders, more city group leaders, more folks working in the area of their gifts, more deacons, right? Because Jesus is saying the movement of the gospel, the movement of the kingdom 
is not to just give up with resistance, but to keep going, to keep pushing grace out to the main roads, to everybody, right? That's why we plant churches. That's why we plant churches. We're not just trying to cram everybody in here. We don't measure success by how many butts are in the seats. We measure success by how many we send, right? That's why we have this mission statement on the wall. That's why we have these pictures of places that are thousands of miles away on the wall, right? Because we believe what Jesus is about here. The invitation goes out. It will not be squashed with resistance. Listen to this quote from uh, Pastor Dan Doriani. The parable, uh, this is just kind of how he summarizes up to this point. The parable depicts the free gift of the gospel. The feast is a metaphor for eternal life. Even today, people ought to be astonished that the king of the universe requests their presence. Before we knew him, apart from any merit on our own, the Lord God set in motion a process that brings ordinary people to himself. All right, so let's look at the last third of this parable. Things get a little, a little strange still. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many will be called, but few are chosen. So what is Jesus getting at here? It's a little confusing, and we, we, we dare not push the metaphor too far. Like what is the wedding garment? What does it symbolize? There's a lot of different interpretations about this. And sometimes when you read in your Bible and you don't totally understand the, 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 the little parts that might be hard to understand, try to look for those things that at least are clear, right? So we might not know exactly what Jesus is getting at with the precise meaning of this wedding garment and not wearing it or how all that works. He may be talking about uh, an ancient tradition where when you go to a wedding, uh, the, there, there's an appropriate attire, and the host of the wedding party would provide that attire for all the guests. And maybe it's that this guy just refused to, to be clothed as was appropriate. We don't know that for sure. Some scholars say that. Some interpreters say that. But what do we see for sure? We see for sure that not all who originally show up to the party remain at the party. Not all that show up to the party remain at the party. Not all those who claim to love Jesus will in the end prove to love Jesus. Not all those who seem to respond to the call of the gospel will in the end endure to the end and believe it. I think that's Jesus' point here. Just because you say you're in, just because you show up, it's perseverance to the end that counts. By listening to the king, 
are receiving day by day what he says and wanting to live it. But this is not new teaching. Remember, Jesus is already many months ago, you guys probably don't remember this, but we preached through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said something very similar to this, to the fact that not all those who show up will be there in the end. Look at what he says in Matthew 7, 15. Very much the same idea. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And here's where it gets more clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Maybe it's the one who's willing to put on the wedding garment. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So those that show up, they might even do amazing things, spiritually speaking. Jesus says, they're not legit. They're not wearing the wedding garment. They will be removed. Look at 1 John says a similar thing. The book of 1 John. They did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Those who truly belong remain. Those who truly belong persevere. So for our context, it might just be this. One way to look at it is just showing up to church doesn't make you a Christian. Like church attendance doesn't make anybody a Christian. Lots of people show up to church for a variety of reasons. But in, at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves this. Have we heard and accepted Christ's call to believe and follow him? Have we heard and accepted Christ's call to believe and follow him? And that's our desire. That's our motivation. Right? Do we want to continue to believe and display a life that shows the humility of repentance? Let me give you one more quote here. Some years ago, a great pastor fashioned a diagnostic question that started profitable conversations about the faith. If God asked you, what right do you have to enter my heaven, what would you say? What right do you have to stay at the, at the party? The pastor found that people answered three ways. Number one, some say they have tried to be good. A good neighbor, a good mother, a good citizen. They say, I've done my best, and I'm no worse than the next fellow. A second group, similar to the parable, is speechless. 
This is not the silence of a listener. It is the silence of the embarrassed, the flustered, and the guilty who know they have nothing to say in their defense. They simply do not know what to say. The third group says, I have no right to enter heaven and offer nothing by way of merit. But I do believe in Jesus. I trust him alone for salvation, and I seek him for daily direction. I think that's a good summary of what Jesus is getting at. You trust him. You trust him. You seek him. Like a lot of you in the room right now, you resonate with the third way. And we see that. We see the evidence of that in your life. Take comfort. Like God is at work in you. This parable isn't meant to scare you. This, me- this parable is meant to assure you. Right? But some of us might not be sure. And that's okay. It's good to be honest about that. And t- we would just commend to you this. Just a simple prayer. Simple prayer. A simple speaking to God. He's willing to hear you. He loves it when you, when you pray to him, even it, when, you're, when things seem cloudy and I'm not sure. And A person might pray this way, Lord Jesus, I'm aware that in different ways you've been seeking me. I believe that your claims are true, that you died on the cross for my sins, and that you've risen in triumph over death. Thank you for your loving offer of forgiveness freedom, and fulfillment. Now I turn from my sinful self-centeredness. I come to you as my Savior. I submit to you as my Lord. Give me the strength to follow you for the rest of my life. See, anybody can pray that prayer and know in an instant that you become a friend of the King. You come with the wedding garment. And there is no rejection when that is your posture towards the King. He'll never reject you. The offer continues to go out. The question is, will you, will you come? Will you show up? Will you listen? Will you receive? And when you do, that clothes us in the garments that prepare us for God's banquet, for life everlasting with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this truth that we proclaim, that the free gift of your grace radiates out and all are welcome to come and receive. Lord, may that be true for the first time for some in this room, and may it be true and a reason to worship for those that know this and continue to walk in it. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.